Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the first episode of the Art of Asymmetrical Warfare podcast. Today we'll be discussing Easter Rising. Easter Rising may be one of Ireland's most famous rebellions and has a huge mythos and legacy associated with it. This mythos was created the moment the guns were silent. As the participants worked through the Anglo-Irish War and the Irish Civil War, they kept going back to the 1916 as the origin point for their rebellion and trying to figure out what had happened and why things had happened. And as they dealt with the creation of the Free Irish State and things didn't turn out the way they thought they would, they would go back to 1916, figure out you know who had failed who and who had betrayed who. This conversation continued into history. And um, as historians research the rising, they had to deal with these conflicting stories and even to this day i think outside of ireland you know like americans and other europeans they look at easter rising and they try to understand it within the greater context whether that greater context be the world war one context whether it be small nations fighting against colonial masters whether it be the rise of democracy whatever you want the context to be it still seems to be a struggle to define easter rising so that's our task for today is to contextualize easter rising and to place it within this nar- greater narrative of ireland's struggle not not even for complete independence because for a while that was a minority belief but really just for self-governance and the right to govern for all irish people not just a specific minority to provide context we have to go back maybe surprisingly to 1843 and stand with daniel o'connell at the monster meeting of terra Daniel O'Connell should be a giant in Irish history, and I think he gets overshadowed by Charles Parnell and uh, Eamon Deveria. But he was a lawyer and a politician, and his big success was in 1829, where he successfully campaigned for Catholic emancipation, i.e. the right for Catholics to sit in Parliament, to have governmental jobs, and to make things easier for Catholics, because there were a number of laws that restricted what Catholics could do. And so that made him super famous, and he tried his luck again in 1843, when he fought through repeal the union um so at that time the king of england was the king of england and ireland and ireland was definitely a a colony or a semi-colony and so repealing the union would have given self-governance back to ireland while still acknowledging the queen as the queen Uh, but he failed and he failed uh through a combination of being old and sick and also his methods were no longer working Daniel O'Connell believed that the only way to gain independence was to use the British system against them. And he didn't believe in violence. He thought it was a waste and that it had never helped the Irish cause before. So why would it help now? Unfortunately, there was a group of young Irish people called the Young Islanders who disagreed with him and they took away his support. And so he he dies um, like mid 1800s um, without repealing the union. And out of his failure comes, like I said, the Young Islanders and then they rebel in 1848 and they're defeated. And then out of that defeat comes the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the IRB. The IRB was a secret oath-bound physical force organization that believed that parliamentary politics would only lead to compromise and disappointment, and so they believed in physical force. The next man to pick up the cause for Irish self-governance and Irish independence is Charles Stuart Parnell. Charles Parnell was an Anglo-Irish Protestant who believed in Irish nationalism. He flirted a little bit with the IRB, but I don't think he was ever a member. His focus was uh, parliamentary politics like O'Connell, and he joins the Irish Parliamentary Party, the IPP. 
The IPP was a nationalist party who believed in rule for Ireland, and so Parnell makes his name by fighting for agrarian reform during the land wars, and later he takes control of the IPP and he helps create the Home Rule Bill, along with the English PM Gladstone. Home Rule would have created a parliament within Dublin, it would have allowed both Catholics and Protestants to sit within that parliament, and Ireland would be able to govern itself but still associate with England. And Parnell was this close to getting it passed, but his own personal life uh, jeopardized his political career. It seems that Parnell was having an affair with a woman who was still married, and she was in the process of getting divorced, but I think he moved in with her before the divorce was finalized. And of course, in England and in Ireland in the 1800s, this was a massive scandal, and it ruined him. However, he made things worse because he didn't step down, he didn't step away from politics, he didn't even acknowledge that the affair was a problem. And so the IPP tries to distance themselves from him because they're trying to salvage what they can after this disaster. And uh, Parnell creates his own party. So he splits the IPP and he tries to stay within politics and he just kind of crashes spectacularly. I think it's hard for people to understand how huge Parnell's failure was. He is like this hero of Ireland. And I think it's something that still, you know, still stings within Ireland. O'Connell started this idea that if we use the British system against them, we'll get independence and we'll get freedom. So Parnell takes that theory and he tries to take it one step further, you know, repeal the union didn't work, so let's try home rule, but he fails. So what's the other option? The other option is physical force. And so while Parnell is out there in parliament trying to fight for Irish independence, the IRB are still around and they're killing people and they're attacking people and they're causing great agitations and they shoot themselves in the foot with the Phoenix Park killing. They stab Ireland's chief secretary and the permanent undersecretary. And this causes a huge reaction both in Britain and in Ireland, and there's a manhunt, and it just destroys the IRB. So now it's 1912, O'Connell struck out, Parnell struck out, the IPP still exists. Ironically, I think they recovered better from Parnell's fall than the IRB did. The IRB is limping along. And now it's up to John Redmond, who's the new leader of IPP and who actually studied under Parnell to pass home rule. This is the third version of home rule. And again, Redmond is really, really freaking close. And one of the reasons why he's close is because when Gladstone worked with Parnell to create the first home rule bill, he made home rule a key platform of the Liberal Party. So the new Prime Minister Asquith, who is a colonial liberal or imperial liberal, has this albatross around his neck, basically, which is home rule. He needs the IPP to um, hold a majority in parliament. And if he loses the IPP, then his party loses power within parliament. But he does not want to pass home rule. He's against it. He thinks it goes against everything the British Empire stands for. A lot of his cabinet are very anti-Irish. And on top of that, you have the Ulster problem. So Edmund Carson, who is leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, the UUP, and um, James Craig, who's also part of that party, have created the Ulster Volunteers. The Ulster Volunteers was a paramilitary group dedicated to defending Protestants from the Catholic onslaught. And there is historical um, reason to be to be nervous or wary if you're a Protestant in Ireland. I think the most recent movement for this period, for 1912, is uh, the 1798 up uprising which is led by Wolf Tone. And a number of Protestants were killed, um, as were a number of Catholics, and the British were brutal when they put it down, but it's still something that sticks in Ulster memory. And so the Ulster Volunteers, they're smuggling weapons, they're training, they're making a big noise, because they also know that the louder they are, the more nervous the nationalist Irish would get, which would then put pressure on Asquith to do something to solve the home rule problem. Asquith's solution is to wait on it and sit on it. And he's able to sit on it from 1912 to 1914 when he's pressured to pass it. 
So it does pass in 1914 and the nationalists are excited and John Redmond feels like, you know, is um, validated and trusting Asquith. And then an archduke gets assassinated in Serbia and World War I began. Asquith uses World War I as an excuse to delay the effects of home rule until after the war. So technically home rule is passed, but it's not going to go into effect until at least three years from 1914. And then to make matters worse, Asquith turns to Redmond and says, now I need you to go and recruit for soldiers in Ireland because we have this huge war in the continent and I need men. And so then John Redmond, feeling like he has to, because he's lost his leverage, home rule has passed and he can't really fight logic behind. We really want to enforce home rule on an island that has known to be a powder keg with two sides, the Ulster volunteers and the nationalists, you know, getting ready for war with each other during a world war. We don't have the manpower to do that. And so Redmond gets that logic and so he feels like he has to go and recruit. However, this comes as a betrayal to a number of nationalists and Redmond, who had had formerly warm relations with some of the nationalists, is cut out and he loses contact with a lot of the organizations within Ireland. So what does this mean for Ireland? So the IPP was a huge source of po political power within Ireland. The Ulster Unionist Party is another huge source of power in Ireland. But what I think a lot of people overlooked was that you had these other smaller organizations that were popping up because people were losing faith in the IPP or they just didn't trust the British government or they were just, you know, nationalist extremists. So one of these groups is, is Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin is created in the 1900s by Arthur Griffith. Arthur Griffith is an Irish figure who should be bigger than he is. He really sets the stage or sets the ideological thought for a lot of the rebels who come out of Easter Rising and, and create the IRA and, and fight the, the British during the Anglo-Irish War. He was a politician and a writer, and two of the things that he contributed to the conversation of Irish independence is this idea of dual monarchy, like the Austrian-Hungary Empire. So Ireland would rule itself and Britain would rule itself and they'd be independent states, but they would share a queen. This contradicts a lot of uh, Republican hopes and dreams, but it kind of makes sense given Ireland's position in regards to, to Britain at the time. The other other important ideological doctrine that he introduces is this idea of parliamentary absenteeism. So he argues that anyone who runs as Sinn Féin and who wins should not sit in British Parliament because the British Parliament government is illegitimate. They have no power over Ireland. Ronan Fanning's book, Fatal Path, which is where he had a lot of his information about the British government's relation with Ireland at the time, makes a compelling argument that while Griffith's idea makes emotional sense, and I think there is some satisfaction that comes from telling the British government, F off, you're not legitimate, so we're not going to bother with you, although we'll run in your elections. Some, some bizarre logic there. Um, he made this argument that it hurt the nationalists' cause in the long run because what happens is that, especially after Easter Rising, Sinn Féin takes a lot of seats from the IPP, but they're not replacing them in Parliament. So the Irish voice diminishes, but the UUP keeps a steady hold on its power base. So they're not diminishing in Parliament. In fact, their voice may even sound louder because you don't have the IPP and you don't have the Sinn Féin to argue against them. And Fanning makes a legitimate point and it makes sense if you still want to engage in the British Parliament and the British political system. And there is an argument, well, you're not going to get what you want if you don't engage with the system. But Griffith's argument is, well, I don't care because I never wanted to engage in the system in the first place. That's not my goal. My goal is to break away completely from the system. And I know I'm not going to do that within Parliament. So we're going to run for election, we're going to take seats from people, and then we're going to basically give Britain the middle finger. Um, I, I get both arguments, but it's something that has a huge impact in, in Irish politics once Sinn Féin becomes a, a powerful party. And actually has an effect in the Irish Civil War and uh, during the first few years of the Irish, the, the Free Irish State, um, which we'll talk about in a different episode. So he creates Sinn Féin. In addition to Sinn Féin, 
There are a lot of smaller groups like the Dalit Weed groups, which is basically just continuing and preserving Irish culture. And a lot of rebels would go to, you know, playing some type of sport match or Gaelic language classes and they would meet each other. So that's where a lot of people met and conspired. There was Tom Navan, which was the female auxiliary group, which was created by Kathleen Clark and Constance Markovich. And it was um, a nationalist group who believed in physical violence to liberate Ireland. And then you had the boys and girls groups, like basically Boy Scouts, but they were teaching them how to fight and how to shoot guns. So, you know, as you do. <laughs> and then I think two of the more important groups are the Irish Citizen Army and then the Irish Volunteers. So the Irish Citizen Army was created by James Connolly and, and Jim Larkin, and they traded it after the 1913 lockout. So the 1913 lockout was a unionist strike for worker rights. And again, a lot of people met each other through this lockout. So in Connolly's mind, Irish nationalism is connected to this bitter struggle for um, for workers. And if you if you have a platform that doesn't take that into consideration, then you're you're worthless, basically. The Irish Volunteers was a group that was created by Eowyn McNeil and Balmer Hobson. They created the Irish Volunteers in response to the Ulster Volunteers. Because like I said, they were making the nationalists freaking nervous. It's interesting because McNeil did not believe that an uprising had any chance of success, but he was still gun smuggling. He was still training men. He was still, you know, allowing to march around and play soldier. And I don't know if he did that because he knew that people that the Irish people needed to let off steam or at some vague point in time, there would be these conditions in which he would be like, yeah, you know, an uprising will succeed, let's do it. But what he doesn't realize, because McNeil trusts Redmond and he is annoyed when Redmond starts recruiting for war, but he doesn't lose faith in Redmond. And he, he looks at War One and he sees that there's no point in trying to rebel during this period. Because again, he doesn't think they're going to win, but also there are a number of Irishmen who are going to fight for the British during War One. And the Battle of the Somme is a huge, huge battle for the Irish-British citizens. A number of Irish citizens will die for Britain during the Somme. However, what he doesn't know is that there's a core group of people within the Irish volunteers who are planning a rebellion, who do believe that British difficulty equals Irish opportunity, and who are willing to work with the enemies of Britain to rebel against Britain. This group of men would be called the Special Committee, and they were made up of IRB men plus James Connolly, and they believe that now is the time to strike against the British. The members of this committee were Tom Clark, Patrick Pierce, Sean Matiamara, Thomas McDonough, Eamon Sient, and Joseph Plunkett. Tom Clark was an old Fenian rebel. He joined the IRB in 1878 and was arrested for attempting to blow up London Bridge as part of the Fenian dynamite campaign in 1883. He spends about 15 years in jail, will meet his wife's uncle in jail, and that's how he meets her and ends up marrying her. When he returns to Ireland, he is the de facto leader of the IRB, especially within Dublin. And he, along with Sean Macchiamardo, who is a young uh, nationalist, do a lot of the planning for Easter Rising and do a lot of the organizing. The next most important person for Easter Rising is Padraig Pierce. Padraig Pierce was a poet and a school teacher. He was a firm believer in reviving the Gaelic language. So he founded St. Edna's College as a bilingual institution. He focused on Irish tradition and culture. He's a romantic man and he believed in the power of martyrdom, which I think he shared with Tom Clark as well. He believed that Ireland needed to shed the blood of its best people to inspire the rest of Ireland to rebel and win independence. And some historians have argued that he really, he didn't necessarily care if the Rising succeeded. He just believed that if you got enough martyr, it would all work out. And I think that's a bit unfair. I think, I don't think he was planning on a massacre and he wasn't asking people to fight just to die, but he made it very clear that either the Rising would succeed or he expected them to die. 
when he himself was fully prepared to be a martyr. The one thing I will say is that there was a comment I read once from Michael Collins in which he said that if James Connolly asked him to follow him into hell, he would do it right away. But if Patriot Pierce asked him, he'd have to think twice. And I think that just illustrates that if you were a romantic, then you probably loved Pierce. If you were a pragmatic person, you probably looked to Clark and to Connolly. Third most important person I think for the for the rising is uh, Sean Mattia Martyr, also known as Sean McDermott. He was born surrounded by Irish history. He moved to Dublin and he became a member of the IRB, Sinn Féin, the Gaelic lead. He was a manager of the newspaper Irish Freedom, which he founded with Hobson. Um, he became very, very close to Clark and his wife and together they planned the rising. He also believed in the power of a bloody sacrifice like Pierce, but I think he was also a little bit more pragmatic like Clark and he was very popular with all of the rebels. I think his death besides Pierce hit the hardest. Then you have Joseph Plunkett who came from a wealthy Dublin family, um, but he contracted tuberculosis when he was young. So he has spent a considerable amount of time in the Mediterranean and in North Africa. So he was well-traveled, he was well-educated and he also firmly believed in physical violence and in rebelling um, against Britain whenever he can he could. Um, when he returned, he joined the Gaelic League, and that's where he befriended Thomas McDonough, who was another member of this committee. He joined the IRB in 1915, and he was sent to Germany with Roger Casement to negotiate for arms and military support. I've read some books, I think it's in Houndshed book, um, Easter Rising, 1916, where it's hinted that Plunkett thought that he was a more confident military commander than maybe he was, but I think he was just trying to fill this gap that definitely existed within the planning for Easter Rising, um, this tattered told gap, because I think this vague idea of let's take Dublin, <laughs> like there's a vague idea and then there's like the, the reality of what does that mean? And I think Plunkett was trying to fill that gap of what does it mean to take Dublin? What do we need to do? What do we actually need to take to be successful? I mentioned Thomas McDonough. Uh, he was an assistant headmaster at St. Edna's School and he was a lecturer at the University College Dublin. He was also a playwright and a poet. He met Pierce Ed McNeil again through the Gaelic League and he joined the IRB in 1915. He actually ends up marrying Muriel Gifford, whose sister was Grace, and Grace was engaged to Joseph Plunkett. And they were supposed to get married, I think, before the Rising, but I think the Rising actually pushes the wedding date off. Thomas uh, was also responsible for planning the funeral of the Irish Fenian leader, Jeremiah O'Dovenan Rosa, where Pierce would give one of his greatest speeches. And then we have Eamon Sient, who was a very religious and committed member of the Irish Volunteers. Um, he joined the Gaelic League when he moved to Dublin, and that's where he became involved in nationalistic affairs, like many other members of the, Ir the Irish Volunteers and the IRB, and then later the IRA. In 1907, he joined Sinn Féin, and in 1915, he becomes a member of the IRB. And then finally, there's James Connolly. We've mentioned him a couple of times in this episode. Connolly, again, is a figure that I think really should be bigger in Irish history and outside of Irish history. It was interesting, I was reading a book about the 1960s and 1970s IRA, and that IRA had a very strong communist and socialist strain to it, and they looked to James Connolly as a source of inspiration, not Collins, not De Valera, not even Pierce. Connolly really seemed to be their guy. Connolly is actually born in Edinburgh, and he joined the British army when he was 14. And he served in the British army for many, many years before he realized that the British imperialism was terrible. And so he deserted and he became a socialist. He moved back to Scotland. He couldn't do what he wanted in Scotland. So he went to Dublin. When he heard about the Dublin Socialist Club, he quickly transforms it into the Irish Socialist Republican Party. He, along with Arthur Griffith, protests the Boer War. And he writes a short book about labor and Irish history that's actually very critical of Daniel O'Connell. He is involved in the lockout of 1913, along with Jim Larkin. And that's where he meets a lot of his 
um, future fellow officers. So he meets Constance Markovich in there. He meets Kathleen Clark there. He meets his future secretary, Winifred Carney there. So he was actually planning a rising of his own because he did not think highly of the Irish volunteers. He thought that they were gutless, basically, and that they would never rebel against the British. So when Pierce finds out that he's planning his own rebellion, Pierce does everything he can to recruit Connolly to their cause because you don't want two uprisings in the same day. That would just be terrible. Or even close within each other. Um, they would just ruin everything. And so Connolly, after talking to Pierce, decides to join their group and help plan for Easter Rising. There are a lot of historians who argue that the leaders of Easter Rising were ill-prepared, they were idealistic, you know, some I think have even said that they were moronic, and I think that's a little unfair. I definitely think that they were in over their heads in a lot of aspects, um, but I think you do have men of talent like Tom Clark, even Mattia Marder and Blunkett, and then I think when Connolly joins, you have a real source of logistical planning that could have made Easter Rising very successful. But one of the things that they realize that they can't do, because they're not dumb, they know they can't win on their own, they know McNeil has a point, and so what they do is that they look at Irish history, and they look at what have people done in the past, what have our, you know, heroes done in the past, and they look at 1798 again, which is a huge uprising. Um, what did the leaders of that uprising do? Well, they went to France, because at the time France was Britain's enemy, and they asked France for help. And France actually did send a small detachment to Ireland to help the rebels, but it was like two weeks later, um, so it was, it was useless. This very bizarre moment where French troops show up in Ireland and they realize that the war is over and then they have to diplomatically extract themselves from, from this bigger, from starting a bigger conflict in Ireland. So the, the leaders of Easter Rising send Joseph Plunkett and Roger Casement to Germany. And Roger Casement is a very tragic figure in Irish history. Um, before he joined the rebels, he also served, I think, the British army. And he is sent to, um, I think he protests the Boer War first, and then he, um, he's sent to the Condro and he writes about the, the horrendous treatment of the Condolese. And at the time, uh, Leopold of Belgium owns the Condro. And, and so Casement writes a Casement report, which is used to strip the Condro away from Belgium. And so he's a very compassionate man, and that's one of the reasons why he is an Irish nationalist, because he re recognizes that British imperialism isn't much better. He is also a homosexual, and while privately he's not embarrassed about it, he's very open about it, there was a push to write that out of his, his history and his narrative. There's also some evidence that uh, Patrick Pierce may have been a homosexual as well. R.F. Foster, in his book Vivid Faces, which I highly recommend, does a great job documenting places in Pierce's journal and writing that suggest that he may have been a suppressed homosexual. So they send, so Plunkett um, briefly talks to the German commanders, think they have an understanding. He comes back to Ireland, Casement stays in Germany to recruit from the British prisoners, Irishmen to help fight during Easter Rising, and to make sure the Germans follow through on their promises to send weapons and, and men. Things seem to be going well for the planners of Easter Rising. The men are drilling, they're being prepared. Some men know exactly what is happening, some men don't. Orders are sent out that there's going to be a parade on Easter Sunday and everyone should be ready. And they think it's going to be a success. However, there is a huge problem. You may have noticed that I have not yet mentioned McNeil's or Hobson's role in planning for Easter Rising. And that's because they didn't have one, because they didn't know. Pierce and the others did not trust McNeil and Hobson. They thought that they did not have the courage to rise up against the British when the opportunity came. And so they never told them about the rising, which is kind of bizarre, quite frankly. And then what's even weirder is that McNeil and Hobson were never suspicious that anything was going on <laughs> until like right up before Easter Rising was supposed to happen. 
I guess they just assumed that, you know, they're drilling, that's normal, okay. What is like, idiotic though, is that the British knew that something was happening. They were getting reports, they knew the Irish were, were more, you know, agitated than normal, they were more active than normal. You had uh, the Howith gun smuggling incident where Erkstein, Childers, and his wife Molly managed to smuggle like 1,500 Mauser rifles into Ireland without the British being able to stop them, but they ignored it. They ignored the demonstrations and the reports and they sent their men on holiday. So Piers is feeling good and he thinks things are going to go according to plan. And then things get really hairy. First, Casement is arrested by the British police. Casement had been in Germany, like I said, and he slowly realizes that the Germans are not going to follow through on their promise and he loses all hope. And so he, he jumps on a German submarine, the Auds, and rides it to Ireland. And he's going to warn Piers to call it off. There's no way we're going to win. It's just going to be a bloody mess and then he's picked up by the British police. And then McNeil finds out, McNeil's pissed. And then Pierce uses this order from the British as an excuse to why we should rebel. And the order basically says, you know, these are the leaders of the Irish volunteers. These are people we should arrest. But it seems like it was more just a list of who is important in nationalist circles and not necessarily like the German plot later in the 1920s where the British would actually arrest the leaders of the IRA. And so McNeil isn't buying it. And McNeil wants to stop the rising, but he won't tell the authorities. So he does what the only thing he can do, he submits a counter order, which basically says the parade for Sunday has been canceled, which screws up everything for Pierce and his group of conspirators. So they have a meeting and they decide, you know, it's too late. We gotta go through with it. So then they send another order that they're, you know, the parades can be resumed on Monday. Needless to say, this causes all time confusion and poor McNeil did a lot of crap for his counter order because there is this, you know, alternative narrative where everyone had shown up when they were supposed to show up. Easter Rising would have been a bitter success. I don't know how true that is without German support, without the additional weapons you were expecting. I don't, I don't see how that's true. I think maybe Easter Rising would have lasted a little longer and more people would have died. Um, and it may, maybe it would have been a bigger uprising and a bloodier uprising, um, maybe similar to 1798. But 1798 didn't succeed either. So poor McNeil and Hobson get written out of the Irish history because they didn't support 1916. And I think it's only recently that you see that they're returning to the Irish narrative. So it's Monday, April 24th, 1916 and the forces of the Irish volunteers, you know, begin trickling into Dublin. Some people, you know, listen to Pierce's order and are ready to go. Some people thought it was canceled and then they show up because they heard something was happening or they were walking by in the first place and they realized this is, this is real. I need to get my weapons and come back. So it is a mess. It is a chaotic mess. One of my favorite examples of how chaotic and just uncoordinated it is, or it was, is the story of Richard Mulcahy and Thomas Ash with the Findall. Brigade. So Richard Mulcahy, who's going to be the future chief of staff of the IRA and then later minister of defense in the Irish Free State, is sent out of Dublin to cut the telegraph lines so the British can't communicate. However, the forces in Dublin never take the telegraph exchange. So once the British take that back from them, they're easily able to, to reconnect the telegraph lines and it's all moot. So then Mulcahy wanders the outskirts of Dublin because he's not really sure where he needs to go. He ends up running into Tom Ash's brigade. It's more of a battalion now because it's only 60 people. They don't really know what's going on, um, but they have rifles. <laughs> so, you know, and something's happening. So I think at one point they even steal like a bakery truck. So they're riding the bakery truck up and down these roads around Dublin. They have a couple bicycles because the bicycle is like the mode of transportation for the IRA. If there's ever a vehicle associated with the Anglo-Irish war, it should be the bicycle. And they, uh, there's a battle of Ashbourne, which is a small barracks um, where they defeat the British and they're able to take the barracks. And it's one of the only victories that the rebels have during Easter Rising. And it's really fascinating because 
it seems like Mulcahy planned the attack and Ash was the commander, so he like used his charisma to get the men to listen, but it's really fascinating considering that Mulcahy is going to be chief of staff of the IRA, is that he uses the tactics that they'll use during the Anglo-Irish War. And it seems like this is kind of like the, the first time that they're really being tested out. So they win, but because it's uncoordinated, because they don't know where they need to go, because they have no way of communicating with headquarters, it's a lot of sound and fury. And that's kind of, that's like the best way to describe Easter Rising is that you have these small engagements throughout the city itself. There are a couple of other battalions and brigades that show up during the countryside, but not as many as they needed because of the counter order. So it's really focused in Dublin and you have these brave stands Right? No one can take away the bravery of these, these stands, but they don't contribute to anything because it's not coordinated. So back in Dublin, the, uh, the Irish volunteers have taken the general post office and that's become headquarters. So that's where Pierce and Clark and Connolly and Matiamara are stationed. East of the GPO, the general post office, Edward Daly, who is Clark's brother-in-law, takes the four courts. Eamon Sient goes south and takes the South Dublin Union. West of Sient's unit, is the Jacob Biscuit Factory, which is now controlled by Thomas Madonna's unit. And that's also where they first print uh, the proclamation of the Irish Republic, which is this huge announcement that Pierce reads out at the GPO saying that, you know, we've taken Dublin for Ireland and we're establishing a republic. James Connolly's Irish Citizen Army takes St. Stephen's Green, um, which is west of the Biscuit Factory, and it's commanded by Michael Mullen. And then Constance Markievicz helps um, build the barricades there. And then finally, you have Eamon de Valera's unit, which takes Boland's mill, which is far west of, um, of Connolly's position. However, they don't take Dublin Castle, which is the center of British control over Ireland. They don't take Trinity College, which cuts through Dublin. So the British take it. The southern units are going to be cut off from HQ. And then they don't, like I said, they don't take the telegraph exchange and they don't take the two main railroads. And this is a huge freaking problem because Dublin's surrounded by five barracks. There's two to the north and three to the south. And yes, the troops are on vacation, but Ireland's a small country. It's not going to take them that long to travel from wherever they are to Dublin. Additionally, England is right next door. Again, it's not going to take long to send reinforcements from England should they need to be there. But the, the Irish volunteers, they don't have anyone. They are alone. So Monday does end on a success, but it's only successful because no one actually expected the rising to happen and no one responded to it. When the British government realizes that there's a rebellion happening, they do declare martial law and the fate of Dublin and Ireland is taken out of the civilian government and placed into the military's hands. Tuesday and Wednesday were spent being bombarded by the British field guns and then losing territory to the south. By the end of Wednesday, the Irish citizen army has been pushed out of St. Stephen's Green and they're holding up in the College of Royal Surgeons. Daly's troops in the four courts, they're starting to experience really intense fighting. And then you have Thursday and Friday, which are known to be the bloodiest days of the Rising. So on Thursday, you have the battle for the South Dublin Union, and it was made famous by the ferocious fighting and by Cathal Broad. Broad is an interesting figure in Irish history, um, and he is a incredibly stubborn fighter. And so during Easter Rising, he's wounded 23 times. And everybody thought he was going to die before the week was over. But he lives and he becomes Minister of Defense um, for the IRA. And he becomes a very difficult thorn in the side of uh, Richard Mulcahy and, and Michael Collins. While Broad is being turned into a pincushion, you have Daly up north uh, with the four courts. And they fight tremendously hard on Thursday and Friday because if they lose the four courts, then the GPO is vulnerable to attack. And Thursday morning starts with British armed trots rolling down Bolton Street and attempting to take Kane Street where Daly's troops are positioned to meet them. Eventually, the British have to drill through the wall, the inside walls and travel from house to house, wounding and killing many civilians to push Daly out of four courts. And so he, he evacuates properly on Friday night. Further bad news arrives on Friday when General John Maxwell arrives in Ireland. 
He was a traditional army man. He had served in Sudan in the Boer War and in the First World War. Um, he becomes the formal commander of chief for Ireland. He ignores the civilian government completely. And I think he does more than anyone to cement the legacy of Easter Rising. One of his first major contributions to that legacy is refusing to negotiate any terms of surrender short of unconditional surrender. So then the artillery barrage has been kept up since Wednesday. One shell lands in Satsville Street and starts a fire, and the fire starts to take um, control of the city. And it gets so bad that the men inside the GPO uh, can start to feel the heat through the walls. And then an oil works catches fire in Abbey Street. So you have artillery bombardment. You've you know you've lost. Ink. St. Stephen's Green, you've lost the Four Courts, South Dublin Union's barely holding on, Daveria is at Boland's Mill doing Daveria things, you know, Biscuit's factory is on the verge of falling. Things are not looking good for the Irish volunteers. And so Friday morning, the women were sent out of the GPO, and then the building's hit by a shell and it catches fire around 3 p.m. So again, things are getting worse. Now headquarters is on fire. Connolly is wounded because he had, he had gone out to check on men and the position. So he's wounded in his left leg um, and he had to be carried out in the stretcher. Eventually, uh, Pearson and co. realize that they need to evacuate the GPO because it is on fire. <laughs> and then at that point, I think Pierce looks around and he realizes that there's no point in continuing this battle. And so he surrenders and the order is passed around. And this, there's actually some controversy about this because De Valera technically is the last unit within Dublin to surrender. And he makes a big deal about this when he runs for president, you know, when he argues that he should be president of Sinn Féin and the leader of the IRA. But really, the reason why he was one of the last to surrender is because he was one of the last to get the orders. <laughs> So again, historians, because I think everyone likes to take pot shots at, at Dev, historians use this to argue that, you know, Dev is not as brave as he claimed to be, or, you know, he is a manipulative person who used this incident to build street cred. And I, I think that's just being a little harsh. Dev, Dev Valera could be manipulative and conniving, but I don't think he was like purposely taking his experience at Bowman Mills and, and contorting it. I think he was genuinely like, yeah, I was the last to surrender, right? Like. <laughs> It's true. And then, you know, he had no way really of knowing who was the last to get the order. He just surrendered when he felt like he could. So I think that's, that piece of criticism of Dev, I think, is a little unearned. So Pierce sends out the order to surrender. He sends out poor Elizabeth O'Farrelly to give, to tell the British that they're surrendering. And then she's sent out to the um, units on the countryside. So eventually Mulcahy and Ash find out that they're supposed to surrender. And this is how bad communication was. They send Mulcahy back into Dublin. And, and I don't know how he did this, but basically the British allow him to go talk to Pierce to confirm that they're supposed to surrender. And then he has to go back to the Findle Battalion to tell them like, yeah, this is real. We need to surrender. And so a lot of the a lot of the um, volunteers were sent to Kilmainham. They were sent to Mountjoy Prison. And so then this is where Maxwell really does his utmost to to cement the reputation of you know Easter Rising and, and to create martyrs out of the seven men who planned Easter Rising. So Maxwell decides that he wants to squash all rebellion within Ireland. So he decides to arrest all Sinn Feiners. Um, so a number of people who had nothing to do with the Rising are arrested and thrown in jail. And the people in Ireland, I think, kind of tolerate this because the uprising was so unexpected and so big, and they're not really supportive of the Irish rebels at this point. So they're kind of like, just do whatever you have to do to take care of this. And then Matswell decides that they're going to try the rebels by military court. And this is a big deal because the Irish have always argued and will always argue that they are political prisoners. They're not criminals. They're not, you know, combatants. 
that their fight is a political dimension. And the only reason they use violence is because that's the only thing that Britain seems to understand. And so um, when Maxwell decides that they're going to be tried by the military court, they lose all of their rights. They technically have a right to an attorney or representative, but it's never told to them. And only some people realize that they can do that. The trials last anywhere from like a minute to maybe a half hour. There's three or four British soldiers, like former lawyers who are also in the military, who sit on the committee to decide if these men should be, um, men and women should be executed. And it's done, you know, secretly and it's done quickly. It seems like the idea is to kill as many of them as he can to instill the most amount of fear and to, you know, really teach this lesson that you don't rebel against the British. So the first, um, the first three leaders to be executed were are Patriot Pierce, Tom Clark, and Tom McDonough. And one of the reasons why they were shot on May 3rd is because they signed the proclamation. And that made sense, you know, in a lot of ways. You shoot the guys who signed the document. But then on May 4th, Joseph Plunkett is shot and the British were so kind as to let him marry his fiancee the night before. And it was literally just marriage, marriage ceremony and then she's forced to leave the prison cell, so. But then you have um, Edward Daly, Willie Pierce, who is Patriot's younger brother, and then Michael O'Hanrahan, who are also executed with Plunkett. And, you know, this, when people look back on these executions, this is kind of where people start to kind of question, like, what, what was Maxwell thinking? Because Pierce, well, Willie Pierce was like 18 years old and he was a courier. He had nothing to do with the uprising, nothing to do with the planning of the uprising. He didn't really fight even. But because he was Pierce's younger brother, it seems that Maxwell just put, like, connected them in his head. Edward Daly and Michael O'Hanrahan were leaders of units who fought during Easter Rising. But there are also a number of leaders who fought who weren't executed. So already this this idea of justice is being like unevenly applied. On the fifth, John McBride, who is another commander of a unit within Dublin, is executed. And then on the eighth, Eamon Sient, who again was a signer of the proclamation and the planner of Easter Rising, is killed. So is Sean Houston. Con Colbert and Michael Mallon. And then Thomas Kent is executed on the 9th. And then finally, Sean Matiamata and James Connolly are executed on the 13th. And Connolly, he had been wounded in the leg and his wound had, had grown inflamed and he couldn't stand to be shot. So they tie him to a chair to shoot him. Um, the Asquith government knows all this is happening. And it's only around like the 9th, I think, when Asquith starts questioning the wisdom of shooting prisoners this way. And so um, he reaches out to Maxwell and he says, you need, to, you need to wrap this up. This needs to stop because now the Irish population is turning against the British because of these executions, but also because a number of citizens were murdered during Easter Rising. And the most famous um, citizen is Francis Shahi Steffington. Francis was a strong feminist and a strong pacifist, and he was out during Easter Rising helping the wounded and helping to feed those who need to be fed. And he was arrested by British officer Captain Bowen Colhurst, who then um, arrests him, throws him in jail, and then decides to take him out of jail to shoot him. And the British try to cover this up. And, you know, immediately after Easter Rising, no one's quite sure what has happened, but his wife, Hannah Shahi Steffington, is making a huge fuss about it and wants to know, like, where is my husband? And there were a number of other people who had been killed as well during the Rising. So the, the population is turning against the British at this point, which is kind of weird. Like the British did more, I think, to turn the population against Britain than the rebels did. Dublin was leveled, right? Because you had artillery bombardment, it caught on fire, a lot of it burnt down. And so you could blame the rebels for that, and I think a number of citizens did, but you can also look at the British and look and be like, well, who had the, the artillery gun? Who was firing at the city? Who was so incompetent that this happened in the first place? So I think there's a lot of factors that contribute to the people turning against the British and then also contribute to the ending of the, the execution policy. And it's interesting too, because Eamon Daveria was next on the list to be executed. And so Irish history would have been very different if Asquith had waited one more day. 
which he was kind of famous for doing. So once they stop executing the prisoners, though, they have to figure out what to do with them. And so a lot of prisoners are sent to prisons in England and Wales. And one of the most famous prisons is Fondrock, which is known as the University of Revolution. I think that's where Collins and Mulcahy are sent to. Prisons allow people like De Valera and Collins to exert their influence and to negotiate with prison guards about the treatment of prisoners. And so when the prisoners are released, certain men make a name for themselves and they are the men that end up you know, leading the IRA and Sinn Féin during the Anglo-Irish War. So that leaves poor Roger Casement. Um, Roger Casement was arrested before Easter Rising and he's put on trial and they don't know what to do with him because he is, has this international reputation because of the casement report. And so the British take out his diary, which is, you know, has detailed uh, journal entries about his many, his homosexual relationships, and they print it and they use it against him. And then they hang him uh, for treason on August 3rd. It cannot be said that Easter Rising itself was a success. Um, I think they definitely held on longer than they should have. And that is, like I said, you had a couple of men who knew what they were doing like Connolly and Clark, as well as British incompetence. I think Easter Rising sticks in our minds because the, the Rising itself was a huge deal. And like I said, Dublin was leveled. A number of people had been killed. It's the middle of World War One, which you would think would take away from the Rising. But I think in a lot of ways, it actually heightens scrutiny on how the British handled it. To have this huge rebellion during the war in the first place, I think is an eye opener for a lot of people. And then the, how quickly Britain executed the prisoners, I think, is another eye-opener. And then the other thing to consider, too, is that around this time, the U.S. has not yet joined World War I. It has been trying to keep a policy of neutrality, although it does favor the Allies, so like England and France. And uh, But Britain is very, very keen on getting America involved. And there is a huge Irish-American population within America. And so they are pressuring Woodrow Wilson to intervene in the Irish problem. And I don't know if Wilson would ever have seriously intervened, but I think it is something that is in the back of England's mind. Uh, Ronan Fanning, in his book Fatal Path, definitely makes an argument that asked with and then later Lloyd George would be very keen on keeping America satisfied with their handling of Ireland. So it's not a success and part of the reason for that is because it, it was a muddled planning and the secret nature of their work you know hurt their cause. That counter order really bites them in the ass and McNeil and Hobson may not have agreed with the rising but I also think hiding it from them was a terrible mistake. It also creates a very harmful divide within the Irish nationalists. After Easter Rising Sinn Féin takes power from the IPP but they don't sit in, in British Parliament they create their own the Dale and then you have the creation of the Irish Republican Army the IRA which is supposed to answer to the Dale but within the heart of the IRA is still the IRB. So Daveria and Broda took an oath to join the IRB to participate in Easter Rising, but as soon as they're released from jail, they forsake their oath and they grow very, very suspicious of anyone who's still part of the IRB. And two of the more high profile members of the IRB are Collins, Michael Collins and Richard Mulcahy, who also happen to be in charge of the IRA, right? So this creates a huge sense of distrust and divide within the IRA and Sinn Féin during the Anglo-Irish War. And there's a number of things that, that contribute to exasperating that divide um, that we won't talk about in this episode, but this divide, it never heals and it continues into the Irish Civil War. The other thing that the Easter Rising does is that if you weren't part of Easter Rising, then you get shut out of politics for the most part. Um, so it becomes this litmus test of are you, you know, nationalisted enough? Are you a Republican enough? You know, where were you in 1916? It becomes a very important question. And that's also why a lot of the Irish men who fought during World War I get overshadowed because Easter Rising becomes the only truth, right? The Irish only rebelled against the British. They never fought for the British Empire during World War I. So I, I think there's a lot of thorny legislation 
Sadducees that it tied in with Easter Rising because of the Anglo-Irish War and the Irish Civil War and what that means for, for Irish identity. I think also it gets difficult because the IRA never went away. Um, the IRA exists into the 20s and then they move up north and they exist in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then you have this idea of, well, we can't tolerate people physically rebelling against the state, even though that's how the Irish state was created. And that is definitely something that as we get closer to the 100 year anniversaries of the Anglo-Irish War, we already had the anniversary for Easter Rising, but as we get closer to these anniversaries, it's something that I think a lot of people are going to be struggling with. I think um, Easter Rising also provides a number of important military and tactical lessons on what not to do when fighting the British, and I think that might also be part of its enduring legacy. Like I said, Mulcahy and Ash practice these hit-and-run tactics that the IRA will utilize during the Anglo-Irish War, and as I said, Collins you know, distrusted Pierce because Pierce was more of a romantic, whereas Connolly seems to be more of a pragmatic strategist. And that's that type of fighting is going to work against the British. These giant stands or these giant, you know, sieges, they're not going to work. And it's interesting because if you look at the Irish Civil War, the anti-treaty people look to 1916. They look to the tactics of 1916 on how to defeat the free Irish state. And actually there is another battle in Dublin where again, Irish rebels are, are held up in the four courts and they're being bombarded by British guns. Um, but this time it is their fellow nationalists who are shooting at them. So yeah, I think Collins from, learned from 1916 the importance of intelligence and communication and then Mulcahy and then many others learn about the importance of mobility and discipline and the element of surprise. Um, but I think Easter Rising leaves many wrong lessons as well, such as the importance of martyrdom. I think Pierce, Pierce may have had a point in the sense of England was only going to listen to violence, but that doesn't mean that you should sacrifice yourself just to sacrifice yourself, which I don't know. I think that becomes a hard tension within the IRA in the 1920s. There's also this idea of this patriotic duty of rejecting any sort of compromise regarding an independent Ireland. Putting home rule on hold wasn't good enough for a number of nationalists. Compromising by fighting for Britain in the hopes that they'll remember it and, and, and keep their promise about home rule wasn't good enough. They weren't willing to work with McNeil and Hobson. And again, that creates a sense of distrust that never goes away. And then also also, when Pierce reads his proclamation, he proclaims an Irish Republic, but no one defined what an Irish Republic actually was and what does that mean. Um, up until 1916, whenever anyone talked about an Irish entity, you know, O'Connell O'Connell foresaw Ireland still being associated with England, but they can rule themselves. Home rule is a version of, again, being associated with England, but having your own parliament. Griffith believed in this dual monarchy idea. So again, you see this in, in the Irish Civil War, when people are arguing about the treaty, that's because there's this undefined idea of what the hell were we fighting for in the first place? What did we mean by an Irish Republic? And that's also an enduring legacy of 1916. I think in the end, Easter Rising was neither a failure nor a complete success. It was yet another attempt by those who believed in physical force to win liberation through violence. It failed, but so had parliamentary politics. By the end of 1916, the IPP was finished as a political force and the physical force rebels were all in jail. All odds pointed towards Easter Rising becoming just another disappointing rebellion. The only reason it didn't was because the survivors realized that to win their independence, they needed both Sinn Féin and the IRA, parliamentary politics and violence. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and that you come back for episode two, in which we will talk about some of the women who contributed to Easter Rising. If you enjoyed this episode, please join to our website, www.samswarroom.com, where you can find supplementary material, book reviews, and a transcript of this podcast. Thank you, and look forward to discussing asymmetrical warfare with you another time.